Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, wonderful listener. This is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. Thanks for listening. And now shifting the paradigm. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. This is Jimmy Church of Fade to Black, and you are in the future because you're listening to Christina Gomez and Shifting the Paradigm. Howdy, folks. This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to my very good friend, Christina Gomez, on Shifting the Paradigm. This is Ray Sobs from the NX Network, and you're listening to Shifting the Paradigm with the intrepid Christina Gomez on the X. You're listening to the NX Network, KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome to Shifting the Paradigm. I'm Christina Gomez on the Paradigm Shifts channel and on the X, the OnX Network, KUNX Digital Broadcasting Talk Radio. Are you ready for this? 
because we are about to embark on an hour and a half of UFO shenanigans and paranormal adventures. Right here is where we look and think outside the proverbial box. We jump down those rabbit holes where you get a red Tic Tac instead of a red pill. First off, make sure you subscribe and share these shows on social media to those who you think are having their minds and eyes open to the reality of the UFO mystery. All of these shows are great primers, and in the push for more clarity, transparency, and disclosure, the more voices demanding answers, the better. My guest today is Mr. Norio Hayakawa. He is a Japanese UFO researcher who moved to the United States and dove deep into the accounts of the Dulce base in New Mexico. But before we bring in our guest, let's go over so some more unusual news from this last week. The James Webb Telescope just launched on Christmas Day. I was watching in anticipation, thinking it was going to launch on Christmas Eve. So I stayed up until about 5 or 6 a.m. to see the telescope be launched into space on Christmas Day. These are unprecedented times when it comes to looking for life in our universe. Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, said shortly after the launch, over three decades, you produced this telescope that is now going to take us to the very beginnings of the universe. We are going to discover incredible things that we never imagined. Richard Panic wrote about the James Webb Telescope for the Scientific American. It says, the JWST was already under discussion even before the Hubble Space Telescope launched in April of 1990. By orbiting Earth, the HST, the Hubble Space Telescope, would have a line of sight free of the optical distortions caused by our planet's atmosphere. It would therefore be able to see farther across the universe, and given that the speed of light is finite, it'll be able to see farther back in time than any terrestrial telescope. Even so, the HST observed primary and optical wavelengths, the tiny portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that the human eye can detect. The Next Generation Space Telescope, which the name later changed to the James Webb Space Telescope, would be looking at the universe in infrared. Now, nearly all of the exoplanets discovered so far rely on indirect evidence, which would detect exoplanets by the regular brightening and dimming of a star as a planet transits across its face, or if the wobble on a star's axis caused by the gravitational pull of a nearby world. But the JWST should offer more direct evidence, giving observations of the planets themselves. In visible light, the brightness of a star overwhelms any nearby objects, but by observing in the infrared, the JWST will reduce the contrast so that the planets can pop out from the background stellar glare as tiny blimps of light. That reduction in contrast will further help observers to probe the atmospheres of a handful of worlds for potential biosignatures such as oxygen and carbon dioxide, which can tell scientists based off of such gases if within these alien atmospheres could reveal the very building blocks of life. The James Webb Telescope will also be able to look at every phase of cosmic history, including the first glows after the Big Bang and the formation of the galaxies, stars, and planets that fill our universe today. Its capabilities will enable the observatory to answer questions about our own solar system and investigate faint signals from the first galaxies formed 13.5 billion years ago. Even though the telescope has launched, 
That was just the easy part. The hard part will be the 30-day journey it will take into space. If all goes well and reaches its final destination, that is when NASA can hold its breath in anticipation. It needs to reach a region of space that astronomers call the second Lagrange point, or L2. But L2 is about 1 million miles away from Earth. With it being so far from Earth, if something breaks, it'll stay broken. The HST enjoyed the benefit of human servicing missions, for instance, to fix its flaws in its mirror. But that option will not be available for the JWST. But if nothing breaks, the new telescope will start streaming scientific data back to Earth this upcoming summer. In other news, the SETI Institute, which dedicates itself to the search for extraterrestrial life, is building an unprecedented new network to find aliens. The Laser SETI Network will be able to monitor the entire night sky for lasers that might be used by advanced alien civilizations to communicate. It is said that messages using light are more effective than radio waves because they convey much more information. But the past few decades, there has been a small number of optical study projects which can scan the stars for extremely brief flashes of light, shorter than a second. The plan is to build out the discovery network, run it, and then determine what capabilities the next generation of cameras should have. The budget for this discovery deployment phase is about $500,000, of which half has been donated so far. An installation that would cover the whole night sky, however, would cost $5 million. While the James Webb Telescope and SETI are fascinating topics, let's shift the topic to dinosaurs. Scientists have discovered an exceptionally preserved dinosaur embryo that has been lying curled up inside a fossilized egg for tens of millions of years, offering further evidence of the extraordinary links between dinosaurs and birds. The 27-centimeter embryo, which is about 11 inches, belonged to a toothless feathery theropod, or Aviaraptosaurus, and is one of the best-preserved dinosaur embryos ever found, according to the study published in iScience on Tuesday. Aviraptosaurus, which means egg thief lizards, are a bird of like theropod dinosaur that lived in what is now Asia and North America. They had varied diets, and their size ranged from that of a turkey to nearly 7 meters in length. Estimated to have been laid between 71 to 66 million years ago. You're listening to the UnX Network, KUNX-DV, Kansas City, Missouri. These are exciting times. New technology is allowing us to make amazing discoveries, and we have a lot to look forward to in 2022 for enthusiasts new to the topic and for veteran researchers alike. And speaking of veteran UFO researchers, my guest tonight is Norio Hayakawa. Born in 1944 in Yokohama, Japan, is an American activist who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was a director of the Civilian Intelligence Central, a loosely knit civilians oversight committee on government accountability. He has appeared as a guest on Coast to Coast AM multiple times and is most known for his ufology investigations in and around New Mexico and the American Southwest. 
He graduated from the University of Albuquerque in 1970, majoring in Spanish, and later taught in a public high school just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. In February of 1990, Norio Hayakawa accompanied a Japanese TV crew to the outer perimeters of Area 51, following a long interview at Bob Lazar's residence in Las Vegas. The following month, in March 1990, Nurio took the Naipan TV crew to Dulce, New Mexico, where they interviewed the locals, including the Hikaria Apache tribal officials, general townsfolk, and ranchers about paranormal activity in the area. In the past, he has been associated with the filmmaker and activist Anthony J. Hilder. Hayakawa and Hilder were responsible for starting the Area 51's People's Rally in 1998. Besides being an investigator, Hayakawa spent many years as a licensed funeral director in Los Angeles. After his retirement in 2008, he became a professional entertainer, musician, playing the keyboard, and singer, performing live music with his one-man band in various small venues in New Mexico. Welcome to Shifting the Paradigm, Mr. Hayakawa. How are you doing today? Excellent, Christina. Thank you so much for having me on your program this morning. Oh, thank you so much for being a part of it. And Norio, I have a lot of young viewers who are not familiar with your research and your background. You were born in Yokohama, Japan in 1944, but now you live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That is rather far away from home. What brought you to the States? Well, because in 1965, I received a partial scholarship at a college right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It used to be known as the University of Albuquerque and uh, I got a scholarship. So I came here in 1965 directly from uh, Japan for the first time to the United States. <laughs> in fact, uh, this is the first place I came, you know, and uh, ever since I got uh, I fell in love with this amazing state. And uh, right now I uh, live in this uh, land of enchantment together with my wife. We used to live in California, uh, but uh, in 2008, we both decided to retire and come to this uh, state of New Mexico. And I'm so happy about it. Do you still visit Japan from time to time? Not too often, uh, but, uh, well, I still am uh, interested in traveling uh, some areas of Japan, no question about it. So are, are you in touch with the UFO scene in Japan or any researchers there? Yes, basically not as often as I should be, but uh, I still have some contacts with uh, top researchers in Japan. Can you tell me about some of them? Well, the topmost uh, person in Japan is Mr. Shinichiro Namiki, who is a main contributor to Japan's largest uh, uh, magazine that deals with unknown and the mysteries and the occult and uh, fascinating uh, topics such as those and uh, it's called the Mu magazine, M-U, as in the lost continent of Mu. It's one of the most popular magazines in Japan of this kind. 
And there is a case that fascinates me that took place in Hitachi province of Japan in 1803. Can you tell us about it and your thoughts on it? You're basically talking about the, the famous Utsuro Bune incident in which uh, a strange uh, round-shaped boat or uh, an egg-shaped object floated and landed on the seashore and uh, witnessed by lots of people, I guess. And uh, from inside this strange object came a lady uh, out of this object carrying a strange looking square box of something. And anyway, well, you just have to find out about this Utsuro Bune incident uh, in Japan. And I've heard uh, a quite a few different stories of what's in the box, but from your research that you have done, what do you think, or what do you think is the most credible that could be in the box? Well, it's very hard to say things about this kind of uh, you know phenomenon, but uh, the entity carrying a box is not just uh, observed in incidents such as the Utsuro Bune of Japan in the early 1800s, but uh, throughout, basically throughout the world, there have been many cases of uh, alien entities carrying some kind of a box. And one good example, that incident happened uh, right here in New Mexico in a place called Dulce, New Mexico. Just outside of uh, Dulce, there was a ranch and uh, there was an incident. I think it's in the, uh, it was in the 1980s in which a uh, uh, patrol officer was uh, called by uh, an owner of a ranch that uh, there was a strange object floating and in the ranch and uh, then you know soon uh, an entity came out and was carrying some kind of a box as he was walking towards him but then soon it disappeared so it's not a unique situation carrying some kind of a, a strange box is uh, it's one of the most uh, unique uh, characteristics of people who claim to have seen uh, entities so, Mr. Hayakawa, what was it that got you interested in UFOs and the possibility of extraterrestrial visitations to our planet? Well, because uh, when I was growing up, you know, uh, when I was in a grade school, um, I used to hear my father who claimed that he had seen a strange greenish ball of fire slowly maneuvering over the Bay of Yokohama, Japan in 1947, in the summer of 1947. And uh, it was uh, uh, one of the things that he said he never had seen such things before, even though he was an expert in night fishing. In other words, uh, Every night he used to fish at the Bay of Yokohama for many, many years. That was his basically uh, his hobby. 
But uh, one particular night in 1947, as he was fishing, it was around two or three in the morning, he saw a greenish ball of fire slowly maneuvering over the Bay of Yokohama, and uh, he had never, ever seen such a, a scene before because he knew all kinds of meteorological uh, things. Uh, he was used to seeing shooting stars. He was used to seeing various astronomical, astronomical events and so on, but never in his many, many years of fishing had he seen this strange greenish ball of fire slowly maneuvering as if it were intelligently maneuvered. And so he used to tell us about that incident on the dinner table quite often when I was growing up. And uh, even though my mother uh, was somehow uh, skeptical about his claims. And uh, of course, my sister also heard this story, but uh, my mother was definitely skeptical about this. And, uh, but I was very much interested in at that time, in the early 1950s, when I was growing up, uh, the term was not UFOs. It was called flying saucers then. So uh, I, I grew up with that kind of atmosphere at home. And so when I got to uh, high school uh, in Japan, I was attending the international school in Yokohama, Japan. And uh, when I was uh, like a sophomore, I began to be more interested in the UFO phenomenon. That was around 1961. So I have been investigating this strange phenomenon called the UFO phenomenon for uh, since 1961. That is many, many, many years. That's incredible. And if, for, for your father's sighting, it led to your interest. And then your mother also had a sighting. But Mr. Hayakawa, we will be right back after this break. Alternative talk you can trust. The X. Howdy, folks. This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to my very good friend, Christina Gomez, on Shifting the Paradigm. I'm Micah Hanks, and let me tell you something. I support Christina Gomez as a Patreon subscriber, and here's why you should too. She brings all of her unique insights to a whole new generation, and all while she's also going through college. Listen, support Christina, become a Patreon subscriber today. You won't regret it. Hey there, it's Christina. Did you know you can get access to an exclusive extra segment of additional questions and answers with all of my guests, as well as behind the scene videos and photos? Ever wonder how I turn my small college dorm apartment into a studio where I can shoot new videos or set up lighting and backdrops for my show or what camera I use? Yep, that video is there too, where I explain as I go along and also give the story of how I learned to do special video effects and editing. You can get access to all of that and much more by joining my Patreon supporters club. 
you'll be helping by supporting this channel, my research, and production costs, as well as investing in new shows coming soon. Starting from as little as $5 a month, there are several tiers you can choose from that suit your budget, and each tier carries extra perks and benefits. Join my Patreon club and become a supporter today. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Jimmy Church of Fade to Black, and you are in the future because you're listening to Christina Gomez and Shifting the Paradigm. we are back. So you were just mentioning about your father's sighting. And that leads me to my next question. In a recent article and on a YouTube video post, you talk about your mother's UFO sighting and how compelling you found it. Can you please share with us the details of that sighting and your conclusions? Yes. This sighting witnessed by my beloved late mother, uh, took place in 1975, and in 1975, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. But one day, I got a letter from her, from Japan, uh, saying that she had actually witnessed a flying saucer a few weeks ago. And she was so excited about it, and I was also excited to read that letter because I knew she had been skeptical about uh, UFOs and my beliefs in UFOs and she used to ridicule my uh, fascination with this subject matter. But uh, that letter completely 
astonished me because in that letter she said she clearly saw a metallic silver-shaped oval-shaped flying saucer just as the flying saucers depicted in comic books and even science fiction movies with a dome attached on top. She actually stated that she saw that flying saucer hovering over a busy railway station in Yokohama uh, during broad daylight. That was around 11.30 a.m. And she just happened to, uh, you know, be walking away from the railway station towards her home in Motomachi Street, not too far from there. Uh, so she was with her grandson coming out of the railroad station and started walking towards the Motomachi Street where she used to live. And Lord behold, something told my mother to turn around and look back at the top of the railroad station. And amazingly, she said she saw a typical metallic flying saucer with a dome attached on top, simply floating above the railway station. And it was a good, uh, you know, nice weather. Sky was blue, it was a perfect day. And she was absolutely astonished. And she pointed to her grandson to turn around and look at the station right now. But then when they both looked at the station, that object was totally gone, vanished completely. But yet she was so adamant that she saw it. She really did see it. And this is the reason why she wrote that letter to me in 1975 when I was living in Phoenix. And uh, that incident still uh, is, lives in my memory. And uh, whenever I think of my beloved uh, mother, I think about her amazing sighting in 1975, no question about it. But the question is, what she saw, I don't know. What that flying saucer really was, I still don't know, but I know for sure that she saw what she claimed she saw, that is to say, a flying saucer. Wow. I mean, you you mentioned she was a skeptic when your father told his sighting story some years before. So this must have been a very powerful experience for her. And so what what she saw was a classic domed flying saucer. And she was with her grandson coming out of the railway station. Did she say if she noticed other people looking at the UFO when she first saw it? No, actually, she I think she looked around because that place was crowded with people, but she didn't see anybody looking at it. So my conclusion is that she did see what she saw and that probably very few other people, maybe none, 
saw that uh, object. And this is why I came to the conclusion that uh, this strange phenomena seems to pre-select its observer for some strange reason or other, this phenomenon seems to pre-select in advance who is going to witness that thing. And that is one of my uh, um, conclusions to this entire phenomenon uh, that I have investigated since 1961. And uh, I still hold this view that this phenomenon is only visible to those who are meant to observe uh, this phenomenon. What was the mentality at that time in Japan in regards to UFOs? Has it been seen to be taken seriously or as a nuts and bolts mystery or demonic? How, how was it at that time in 1975? Well, around 1975, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, TV programs in Japan that dealt with flying saucers because uh, the topic of UFOs and flying saucers were very popular in Japan uh, beginning around, uh, you know, actually even from the beginning, from the uh, uh, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and uh, especially in 1980s uh, time, there were many documentary programs about UFOs that inundated Japanese popular TV, uh, you know, stations programs, uh, primetime programs were filled with programs about UFOs. And so uh, unlike other countries, uh, the, the topic of UFOs were so common and uh, most people uh, were not only interested, but seem to accept the UFO phenomenon as a real phenomenon. And the, the role that was played by Japanese television uh, was pretty uh, uh, important. And uh, so that's my answer. Right now, it may not be that much uh, interest, but still, there are still some programs and there are still a number of uh, large organizations in Japan that study UFOs. In fact, uh, there is a UFO research center, I believe in the city of Fukushima. It's an amazing UFO research center and museum that was built, I think, around the 1990s. But uh, it's a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, um, large building and a museum and uh, it's still there. So this shows that the topic of UFOs and flying saucers are very, very popular, but uh, you know, it's taken as, as, as for granted that it's there. My goodness. Let's change gears a little bit. So in 1990, you were involved in a production and had a film crew accompanying you while looking around the Achalera Mesa near Dulce, New Mexico. What evidence seemed the most compelling to you while doing research on Dulce Base? Well, Christina, I have been doing in-depth research on the alleged Dulce Base 
just outside of the community of Dulce, New Mexico, which is part of the Hikaria Apache Reservation, a humongous reservation in northern New Mexico. And uh, so I've been researching this alleged Dulce base for many, many years, actually since uh, uh, 1988, even though in 1990, uh, that was the first time I actually took a Japanese television crew to interview the people of Dulce. That was in 1990. And the strange thing was that while we were interviewing the people in Dulce, the Hikaria Apache folks on the street of Dulce, asking questions, uh, asking the people if it's true that there are UFO sightings there and that there were flight of strange military helicopters flying over the town quite often. And if all these things were true. And so we interviewed a lot of people on the street, but sooner or later, we were approached by a flashing light of a patrol car. And lo and behold, it was the director of security or safety or police chief at that time, virtually, who detained us and who, well, just started taking our IDs and uh, all the information on the TV crew, including myself. And so we were detained for about 45 minutes right there on the spot and we were taken to the office actually right nearby. And after checking our IDs, he finally released us. But uh, before he released us, I asked the chief, is it true that there is an alien base of some kind right here in Dulce, right next to Dulce? And suddenly his countenance rather changed and he seemed to have gotten upset and he said, I refuse to talk about it. And that's all he said. He said, I don't want to talk about it. And so that to me was an answer that could be interpreted as maybe there's something there, <laughs> you know? And so ever since that time, I've been visiting Dulce, New Mexico, many, many times. Even now, I visit that location sometimes and I have made many, many friends, the Hikari Apache folks, I made many friends over there and I have been told by many residents that they indeed still seem to continue witnessing some strange lights quite often at night. And they also claim to have witnessed strange looking entities such as the so-called uh, Bigfoot like looking like creature by the Navajo River quite often. Not only that, but uh, because of that location, the Navajo, uh, the, the uh, Hikari Apache Reservation, yeah. 
there's a deep cultural, spiritual belief that their ancestors came up from underground, you know, thousands of years ago, I guess. And so it is a deep spiritual belief that they have. And so intertwined with their spiritual belief, you know, this thing about UFOs come into the picture at the same time. So I cannot debunk some of those claims made by local people. In fact, I know that this phenomenon, which I call a paranormal phenomenon of some kind, actually exists. Even though there is no physical, tangible evidence whatsoever that there is a physical underground base there, I still think that something is still going on in those who I have so many questions that my first question is, was the police officer that detained you a Hikaria Apache native? Yes. He was practically the police chief at that time. Uh, even though his title was the director of safety uh, of that uh, location. And he is a Hikaria Apache person. And uh, later on, many, many years later on, he showed up at the first Dulce Base Conference, which I helped organize in Dulce in March of 2009. For the first time in the history of Dulce, in the history of the Hikaria Apache Reservation, an outsider like myself came in and organized this conference called the Dulce Base Fact or Fiction Conference and invited the local people and that was the first time and before I organized this unprecedented conference in the middle of Hikari Apache Reservation I was so afraid to hold this because you know an outsider coming into an Indian reservation over there and start this conference about the Dulce base. It was unheard of until then. But uh, uh, fortunately, there were a few people in the Dulce area, including one person that was in charge of the cultural affairs over there. She said, there's no problem in holding this conference because she herself can tell me about what's going on. There's definitely definitely something has been going on, she said. So I befriended this person and uh, fortunately this, this uh, conference became a unprecedented success. The first time in the history of Dulce that a conference was held to go into the depth of the question, is there a base in there? You know, that leads me to wonder if the policeman felt superstitious about it or, or if he knew things that he didn't want to get into trouble speaking about. Did he say anything to you during that conference? Did he break his silence to you? Well, he didn't really want to say too much, but 
he did make a lot of uh, cryptical question and you know a lot of people there uh, culturally speaking are not accustomed to directly describe things uh, the way we understand they speak some kind of a symbolism you know in that uh, their description so their answers are not always direct and but I came to know this person very well. He's a friend of mine now. He lives in Dulce, and he's a believer that there is something there. Uh, and uh, but uh, he told me that we're looking at the wrong place to 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 search for this uh, base. It's not right in Dulce, but near Dulce. But uh, more than that, he still refuses to talk about it. And do you think that the area of Dulce and the Atrolita Mesa is an area of mystery that has been happening for hundreds of years? Is is there an ancient oral history regarding that area among the natives? Well, as I just said to you, that the many, many Native Americans uh, in the Southwest of the United States seem to have the belief that they're, they came from actually underground. And, uh, you know, this belief in their spiritual uh, ancestry includes belief that there are entities in this world, such as the so-called skinwalkers, who appear occasionally from possibly another dimension. And materialize suddenly and present to the observer as a physical phenomenon. And so uh, you talk to a lot of uh, uh, people in Dulce and a lot of people seem to believe in this uh, thing, that there is this, these entities and this phenomenon are real, but yet when it comes to actually pinpointing physically it's hard to come up with any physical evidence but the fact that they many of them still believe in that shows that despite the lack of physical evidence there is something there in fact uh, my con conclusion to this whole phenomenon is that maybe we are not looking at this thing we shouldn't be looking at this thing only from a physical nuts and bolts stand uh, viewpoint, you know. And uh, so in this world, there are more things in this world that is beyond just physical nuts and bolts phenomenon. And that is my conclusion. Uh, I have always uh, felt that there's more to life than just the material in this strange world we're living. There are so many things that we still don't understand even by the use of empirical science as we know science to be. There are more things beyond the physical in this world. 
And as you mentioned, the local Hikaria Apache Nation residents of the town of Dulce have quite a few stories regarding the Achuleta Mesa, including underground ant people, Bigfoot, and cattle mutilations. Were you able to find out anything not very well known and interesting from them during interviews that might shed light on the area, maybe a specific story or legend? Well, I have made many friends in Dulce, including the uh, owner of the largest ranch in Dulce. And uh, the, his name is uh, Edmund Gomez and the Gomez family. The Gomez family uh, lived in Dulce way before the Dulce area became part of the Hikaria Apache Reservation. And uh, these, uh, uh, this family, the Gomez family, is one of the many uh, Hispano families who uh, populated that area uh, ever since the uh, Spanish uh, conquistadores, uh, you know, took up residence in that area, you know, and uh, they are the descendants of the Hispanos, and uh, there they became involved in uh, raising cattle, and that was their big, uh, you know, uh, thing. And they they were very good in raising cattle and. The Gomez family used to uh, own the largest uh, cattle ranch in the Dulce area. And then once that whole area was established as Hikari Apache Reservation, I believe in the uh, late 1800s, they were allowed to continue living even in the reservation even though they were not Hikari Apache people. And so they, you know, the people in uh, the Dulce area accepted these families, the descendants of the Hispano cattle ranchers that used to be living there many, many, many years. Okay. They became friends with the Hikari Apache people and they were integrated very well with the community. Uh, but uh, the Gomez family, Mr. Edmund Gomez in particular, told me that they, in the 1970s and 1980s, in those times, they had lost about 20 cows due to a strange incident called the cattle mutilations. And they lost virtually millions and millions of dollars in their income because of this strange incident that took place uh, between 1970 and 1980. I think those were period of the, the height of the cattle mutilation incidents. But over the years, Mr. Gomez came to a conclusion that it was not the aliens who were mutilating the cow, but it was the government. And uh, Mr. Gomez uh, said to me that he believed that uh, the U.S. government was picking up certain cows over there to test the radiation effects of the 1967 
uh, underground explosion, nuclear explosion test that took place outside of Dulce in 1967. It was called Project Gas Buggy, in which the Department of Energy detonated a nuclear device about a mile and a half underground outside of Dulce, about 20 miles uh, southwest of Dulce in 1967 in this Project Gas Buggy. And uh, later on, about 10 years later or so, it seemed that the radiation started leaking out and caused sickness in uh, some cows and local cows and, and even among people. And so this is the reason why even now there seemed to be a high level of uh, radiation among the uh, Hikari Apache folks that uh, live in Dulce. And, uh, but uh, Mr. Gomez, as well as a friend of mine, the late friend of mine, Mr. Gabe Valdez, who used to be the uh, state police chief who was in charge of Dulce for many years, he also came to the conclusion that the cattle mutilations were the cause of the United States government trying to test the radiation effect of the problem. So it's very difficult to say, but uh, these are some things that are not too well known among the general population. But we need to know about this. That's that's a really fascinating theory. And, you know, I wasn't aware of those details. So uh, that that's a really interesting aspect to the whole cattle mutilation mystery. So we are coming up against a break. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to the UNX Network. KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri. Are you ready to read about true paranormal events? UNX Media publishes nonfiction books about UFOs, ghosts and haunted places, time anomalies, cryptid creatures, and more. Just like KUNXDB Radio, it's all about unexplained phenomena. Visit www.unxmedia.com to see our list of great book titles by Debbie Ziegelmeyer, Gene Walker, Devin Listrom, Wayne Lawrence, Bill Spicer, and yours truly, Margie Kay. That's unxmedia.com. Howdy folks, this is Lou Elizondo and you are listening to my very good friend Christina Gomez on Shifting the Paradigm. Hey, wonderful listener, this is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review, and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks Program right here on KUNX. And right now, you're having your paradigm shifted by the one and only Christina Gomez. back. I'm joined by Norio Hayakawa, who lives in New Mexico, and we were talking about mysterious lore and legends in and around Dulce, New Mexico. You mentioned before the Skinwalker as a multidimensional entity. So the Hikaria Apache people also have a legend of something similar to the Skinwalker legend, maybe by another name. Do you know of any other of these kinds of stories? Well, it's very difficult to to go into a lot of details about their beliefs but uh, there are some folks in the Dulce area who also claim to hear some unusual chanting their uh, you know ancient uh, type of uh, ancient people's chanting that they hear sometimes in that area near the Altavilla Mesa or around Dulce, when there are no, nothing like that going on, but yet some people claim to hear occasionally those uh, spiritual chantings uh, of their ancestors. So uh, these are some of the things that uh, fascinate me, and these are some of the things that led me to believe that there's something there. But... Uh, even though they may not be an actual underground base or underground 
U.S. alien collaborated uh, biological laboratory there. There's no evidence of such, but uh, there's evidence, circumstantial evidence that this phenomenon is quite prevalent in that area. And so this is the reason why I believe that the United States uh, military also has been interested in that area, the uh, Dulce area, uh, Farmington area, the Four Corners area of the United States, which seem to have always uh, had a high number of sightings uh, of strange objects uh, for many, many years. The Four Corners area I'm talking about near, uh, you know, Farmington and uh, that, that area, Dulce, Aztec, this whole area is rich with uh, sighting reports uh, from the very start. I covered the Dulce Bay story on an episode of Mysteries with a History, and a part of that show covered the strange story of Phil Snyder and his death after talking out about the Dulce base and the alleged war that happened under the ground. Is this something that you know about or have any knowledge of? Well, actually, Christina, it's very important to bear in mind that Phil Schneider uh, came out only in 1995 and started giving out lectures around the country, especially among survival groups. And he started giving out lectures and claimed that he was part of the team of the United States government who were helping construct these underground bases. But the problem with Phil Schneider's story is that uh, he had uh, already been reading lots of books about uh, underground bases. And he had also been hearing about the claims of Mr. Bob Lazar uh, of Area 51 fame. So he had quite a knowledge about uh, underground bases by reading books like the Branton books and uh, you know all kinds of books about underground bases. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting the fact that it was Bob Lazar who for the first time in 1989, he was the first one to have claimed that he had seen a document a government document saying that there was an altercation between the U.S. Delta forces and a strange group of entities in an underground base. And he claimed this in 1989 in an interview, but he didn't mention where that underground base was. He didn't mention whether it was under Area 51 in Nevada or Dulce, New Mexico. He never mentioned it. But uh, my conclusion is that Phil Schneider had read many, many books by the time he started giving out lectures. And it's my conclusion, and I may not be popular about this, but it's my conclusion that he put himself as a protagonist in that story promoted by Bob Lazar in 1989. He 
made himself a protagonist in that story, saying that he was part of that, uh, not only the expedition and the construction workforce of that base, but he was injured in that firefight that he allegedly said he took that took place in 1979. And of course, it was Bob Lazar who first said that it was in 1979 that there was an altercation in an underground base. And so this is very important to know, Christina, and uh, I'm not that popular among UFO and uh, UFO believers for saying this, but it's my conclusion that he just put himself uh, as one of the characters in this alleged story. That's, that's interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your conclusion. Now, shifting gears a bit, in September of this year, you wrote an interesting article entitled, The UFO Phenomenon Seems to Pre-Select Its Observers. You started out with a quote from Mr. Jacques Vallée, which says, Human beings are under the control of a strange force that bends them in absurd ways, forcing them to play a role in a bizarre game of deception. You then go on to write that the UFO phenomenon seems to you to be a paraphysical intrusion into our physical dimension by an unknown intelligence or unknown sanctioned entities. Can you go into detail on this and what brought you to this way of thinking? Well... You know, Christina, when I started investigating the whole UFO phenomenon in 1961, I was a firm believer that the UFO phenomenon is definitely, was definitely an uh, indication that we were being visited by physical aliens from out of space. But uh, my viewpoint started changing in the, light, in the late 1970s. Around 1978, I began to devour books by Jacques Vallée and John A. Keel, and even Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Uh, and these three folks, which I consider to be the best authorities on this UFO phenomenon. So beginning around late 1970s, I came to the conclusion that the UFO phenomena may have nothing to do with actual physical visitation by physical extraterrestrial biological entities, but it could be an extra dimensional intrusion into our dimension by sentient uh, paraphysical entities that have existed from eons ago in our history of this cosmos. And that's my conclusion. Uh, whether one likes it or not, you know, I hold on to that uh, belief that uh, this phenomenon is not a physical phenomenon. It's rather a paraphysical phenomenon in which these sentient paraphysical entities 
with their ability to materialize and dematerialize at will, happen to pre-select who will observe the phenomenon for one reason, and that is to change our belief systems. Um, for some reason or other. And uh, this is my personal opinion that I still hold that we are being slowly brainwashed into this kind of belief that we are being physically visited by physical extraterrestrial entities from far outer space. But rather than that, my belief is that they are not from far out of space, but they are from right here and they coexist with us in another dimension, parallel dimension, and are materializing and dematerializing at will and appearing to the observer as a physical phenomenon. And one of the characteristics of this phenomenon is that uh, this phenomenon is unable to survive for long in our dimension, except for a few minutes at a time. And it cannot survive. And the other characteristic of this UFO phenomenon is that its ability somehow to interact with our physical parameters such as radar and so on. And so, as I said, we are slowly being manipulated psychologically into the belief of physical aliens for some strange unknown reason uh, that uh, you know, that probably will face something in the very near future. I don't know when, but uh, this kind of belief system will be used to uh, promote that scenario in the future. And uh, I just don't want to go too much into this detail of this, you know, strange... Uh, the thing that I'm talking about, because it may, uh, you know, infuriate uh, a lot of people who have a preconceived notion that uh, we are being visited physically by highly advanced intelligent entities from outer space. I've thought about these possibilities and theories you mentioned, but also I wonder if it advanced beings in this dimension in some distant star system may have discovered the way to do interstellar travel by utilizing a hyperspace dimension for immediate space travel. It, it's, it's certainly very interesting and a new field of physics to consider with these objects. Now, in 1998, you started the Area 51 People's Rally. Can you explain what that entailed? What did you do exactly? Well, a friend of mine, the late Anthony J. Hilder, who I consider to be one of the top uh, conspiratologists that I uh, know, 
uh, Anthony Hilda and I started organizing the People's Rally at Area 51, you know, outside that, uh, right next to the perimeter line on Groom Lake Road. And uh, this rally began in 1998 to address the uh, secrecy, the unnecessary secrecy behind Area 51. And uh, I promoted this people's rally in order to bring attention to the fact that the secrecy about Area 51 included the secrecy about former workers at Area 51 who were contaminated and were sickened by toxic chemicals that were used during the stealth program uh, research at Area 51 uh, beginning in the uh, 1980s and lasting till the, uh, you know, 1990s and mid-1990s. They were burning highly toxic chemical substance in the uh, areas right next to Area 51 in the desert areas. They were burning all these atomic, atomic uh, uh, toxic materials and uh, they caused some workers to die from exposure to these uh, deadly chemicals. And so that was one of the reasons why we started the People's Rally at Area 51. And the other reason was that the government should come out clean and admit the existence of Area 51 as a, as a base, not just saying that there is a base near Groom Lake. <laughs> until then, until we started the People's Rally, Basically, the government said that there was a base, operating base, uh, at Groom Lake without naming that base as Area 51. But because of the people like us, activists at that time, uh, the government finally admitted that there is an Area 51 base at Groom Lake, not just uh, an operating base at near Groom Lake, but at Area 51. So I believe in the importance of activism about uh, all kinds of things like this, you know, and so <laughs> I was one of the early uh, activists of Area 51. And uh, I don't regret it because I made lots of friends uh, while researching Area 51. Talking about Area 51, Glenn Campbell, someone you are familiar with, who gained a lot of fame in the 1990s with his monitoring and tours of the areas around Area 51, sadly passed away on December 13th of this year. What do you remember most about him and his research? Well, Christine, I, uh, I became friends with, uh, well, Glenn Campbell in 1993. When he first came to Rachel, Nevada, to investigate the goings-on and to find out what this commotion was about Area 51, because until Glenn Campbell came into the scene, uh, there were activists such as Gary Schultz, 
and myself and Ralph McCarran and other activists at Area 51, way before Glenn Campbell started showing up. Now, Glenn Campbell arrived in Rachel, Nevada and set up his Area 51 Research Center right in the town of uh, Rachel in 1993. Because uh, at that time, the, there were the only activists there were people like myself who has been very active since 1990, you know. And then in 1991 and 1993, early 1993, I held, I helped organize the first ultimate seminar in the parking lot at Rachel's uh, Alien. <laughs> that was a big success in 1993, just before, well, Glenn Campbell arrived at the same time. By the way, yeah, in 1993, Gary Schultz and I held the first ever conference right in the town of Rachel in a parking area. It was called the Ultimate UFO Seminar, and I invited Bob Lazar as a speaker to that unprecedented uh, conference, and that was the first time ever that Bob Lazar appeared in public and spoke of his experience. And it was held under a large military tent that Joe Travis, the owner of the Little Alien, told us later that he had borrowed that tent from the base. In other words, he already had, to me, some kind of a close relationship with the base at Area 51. And that's why he was able to borrow that military, humongous military base for this conference. But Glenn Campbell just arrived when we were having this first time ever conference and he did not really, you know, uh, think much about this conference because he was uh, very skeptical about Bob Lazar's claims and so on. And uh, but uh, uh, I later on talked to him many times, and I uh, befriended him. And Glenn Campbell was a realist. He was a realist when it came to uh, Area Fifty One and the claims of Bob Lazar, and he was very skeptical. And uh, so later on, he, uh, after he did a research about Area 51, uh, he and uh, the owner of the Little Alien got into an altercation because the owner of the Little Alien, the Travis family, did not like an outsider like Glenn Campbell coming from the back east to set up an Area 51 research center in Rachel, Nevada, the, 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 there was a lot of animosity and eventually Glenn Campbell married one of the residents of Rachel and that was a friend of the Travis family. And so uh, the Glenn Campbell was really practically kicked out of Rachel and he moved to uh, Las Vegas with his uh, uh, you know, girlfriend, because he married that that person, 
and uh, the owners of the little alien was not too happy about it. But uh, so, but uh, Grant Campbell continued on his research of uh, Area 51, even from Las Vegas, where he moved to. And, but he was a realist and I highly commend him for his calm view about Area 51. And uh, several years later, he abandoned the study of Area 51 as a non-issue, that he found nothing unusual about Area 51. And he came to the basically the same conclusion that I came to, that there was nothing alien about the Area 51 base. Uh, so it's very important to know the history of the Area 51 research, especially the history of activists such as Glenn Campbell, uh, who did so much to bring to the major news media the base of Area 51. Until then, of course, there were activists such as myself and Gary Schultz and others who, you know, invited uh, some news media to that facility, uh, to that uh, outside perimeters of Area 51, but not to the scale that Glenn Campbell did in the mid-1990s. So because of Glenn Campbell, the late Glenn Campbell, the U.S. has become very familiar with Area 51. Wow. Well, we are coming up to the end of the show. So my last question for you is, you have a YouTube channel that is under your name. And in one video, you talk about how the government will never disclose the true nature of the UFO phenomenon. Why, in your opinion, do you think that's the case? Well, I have to tell folks that the reason why the United States government and the military can never disclose the true nature of the UFO phenomenon is because of the belief system. How the belief systems of people can affect society in general. And in the United States government and the military, there are a large number of upper echelon military and the government officials who have the belief that this whole UFO phenomena is dangerous, uh, is a dangerous belief that uh, can uh, upset society. And the United States government is in no position to bring up this topic because it involves uh, even the religious beliefs of the military and the top echelon of the United States government. And this, releasing this can cause total confusion and it will never happen because the United States government is not in a business of talking about anything that goes beyond physical nuts and bolts empirical science. Uh, it's not in the business of bringing up uh, belief systems, whether it's religious or not, and it doesn't want to get involved in it. So this is the reason why, even though the Pentagon has released some fascinating 
U.S. Navy's uh, footage of uh, strange objects, it's never going to admit the real nature of this UFO phenomenon. People like Luis Elizondo, who claim to have worked for an agency in the Department of Defense that dealt with UFOs, even, you know, people like Elizondo uh, left that position mainly because he felt threatened by the top echelon of the United States government and the military who told him that he should not delve into this topic because it's going to involve religious belief systems of those who are in high position in the United States government. And so this is the reason why the Pentagon will never disclose what this phenomenon is unless these entities themselves first disclose them in the near future and clarify everything to the public. And that day, I don't know when it's going to happen, but uh, only through these entities' own decision to manifest themselves will the people know the truth. I, I have to agree with you on that. I, I truly believe disclosure will come from the people and not from the government. Mr. Hayakawa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can people find you online? Thank you so much, Cole. I, uh, I was so uh, thankful for in, inviting me to your program. And the people can just go to my website, which is noriohayakawa.wordpress.com, or people can go uh, look me up on Facebook, uh, fernandon.hayakawa, uh, or just search Facebook for Norio F. Hayakawa, or you can uh, just look at Twitter, uh, or just Google my name, Norio Hayakawa, on Google, and you'll find tons of information about what I do. So once again, Crystal, I was so, so surprised present, pleasantly that you were interested in what I have to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the UnX Network. KUNX-DV, Kansas City, Missouri. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I thought it was fascinating hearing from Mr. Norio Hayakawa. Make sure to check out Norio's links since he is constantly writing new articles about the phenomenon. I want to wish you all a wonderful Happy New Year. This is the last show for 2021, but many more to come in 2022 with fantastic guests and topics covered each week on this channel. So make sure to subscribe. Be safe and remember, keep your eyes on the skies.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 